Thank you for downloading or podcasting this track. This recording has been remastered to provide the best sound possible given the audio environment of the original recording session. Mosaic Silver Spring is a faith community located just inside the Capitol Beltway in Montgomery County. For more information, please visit our website, www.mosaicsilverspring.org, and we'll see you in the neighborhood. Good morning, church. So I invite you to read with me, or read along. Oh, don't read out loud. I'll read. (laughs) Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. You can see it here or read it on page 4 of your bulletin. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight and why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which which the Egyptians have oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, we just we thank you for your word. We need to be reminded every day, Lord, of the promises that you have for us. 
Lord, be with Joel today as he reminds us again and teaches us. Lord, open our hearts to receive it. And Lord, then to, to have the courage to, um, to live by it and to um, put it into practice every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Got it. Thanks. In January of 2001, the United States Army uh, decided that it was time to change up its motto, its recruiting pitch, so to speak. Uh, So for years, uh, the commercials that would run uh, had the language of be all that you can be join, and then like this tagline, and then like join the U.S. Army, right? So this was their recruiting pitch uh, in the United States. And in January of 2001, they decided to switch that up. Uh, In a New York Times article, James Dow was writing about this new recruiting pitch. And he, uh, this is a quote from his article uh, right after it came out. Based on research showing that young people view military life as dehumanizing, the motto will be the centerpiece of a $150 million campaign that uses slick commercials, a new logo, and an interactive website to bolster the Army's recruiting programs, which have missed their goals for the last three years. And so they spent a lot of money, and they developed a new website, and they came up with the pitch of an army of one. That was their pitch. So they went from be all that you can be to an army of one. And uh, this new change uh, was rolled out, and all of the primetime sitcom and sporting events commercial slots with a lone soldier running through the desert with, like, their gear on, and then talking about all the training they get, and it's like an army of one. And uh, this received no small amount of feedback. I remember I had feelings about this campaign and what it communicated. Uh, That feedback ranged from concern uh, about what exactly you're communicating to our enemies if we have an army of one. Uh, There aren't many wars that are typically won with an army of one. Uh, And for me, someone who had grown up uh, uh, in a military family and was in the military myself, There was this sense of how does the army that has this core value, one of the seven core values of selfless service, recruit people into the organization with a slogan of army of one? And for me, that was the greatest tension. How can you try to just say what people want to hear if it runs counter fundamentally in not a small way against the very design and values of your organization itself? And so no matter whether people liked the website, no matter what it did to recruiting numbers, it was the idea of the bait and switch. How can you tell people, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you are just an army of one and invite them into uh, a bureaucracy uh, with hundreds of thousands of people that has a different set of core values. And that tension 
that the army tried to navigate through in 2001. By the way, that recruiting campaign, it didn't stick around. I, I think it lasted like less than five years and they switched it up. But the tension of what they were going after, this idea of how do we catch the attention of young people, which is always dangerous, I'll admit up front, this is apart from the service, of getting a lot of old people in a room and saying, how do we grab the attention of young people? Uh, that has gone wrong a number of times throughout history. But, I digress, uh, the tension of an individualized culture and how organizations or groups navigate that, that's not just a recruiting problem and that's not just an army problem, that would be true of any organization that valued community, that at its core involved more than one person that in its very design was a collective effort with a set of values that dictated commitment to one another. And so it's a problem that's not unfamiliar to the church in the 21st century in a context of a highly individualized culture. And so as a church then, we have... Uh, that same challenge, that same tension, so to speak. And so as a community, uh, while your message always gets contextualized, not changed, but contextualized for the people and culture and time and place that you find yourself, part of the anchoring effect of covenants is that it roots our sense of identity in God's relationship with his collective people. And so in an individualized society, there is no such thing as a church of one. It doesn't exist. People try, but there is, according to God's covenants with his people, no such thing. And I think that is the value for us collectively to challenge, to push against some of the cultural pressures that we face, to say, wait a second, so can I do that, what the army did back then, can I do that with my own spirituality? Can I, uh, you know, hit the settings wheel of my spiritual life and go through every preference and pick what I want and adapt what I don't, and, and in that sense, form a community around my own designs? God, who established a covenant with his people, answers that question with a clear no. And it's not that he doesn't care about you, and it's not that he uh, isn't concerned for our current cultural place, but it is that in his very design of how he relates to humanity, we are invited into community. And so when it comes to a healthy and vibrant spiritual life, you can't have that in isolation. You have too many blind spots when it comes to your own sin. You have too many unchecked biases when you're a church of one. You can't accomplish or be corrected in a way that you can as a whole community. And that is part of God's very design.
And so that brings us to Exodus chapter 3, one of the most significant chapters in the Old Testament. Uh, The Exodus, so that you know, is almost like the lens of how the Old Testament people understood God's salvation. It is taking them out of bondage and slavery in a way that they had no control over and delivering them by God's own hand out of his love and mercy for the collective whole and bringing them out of that into the promised land. And we're at the beginning of that story where the Israelites, the collective people, had been crying out to God at the end of chapter 2. They had been saying, slavery and oppression is terrible. And God heard their cries and said, I'm going to do something to deliver you. And so this morning we'll look at that deliverance and its shaping effects on the full covenant community in two points this morning, the supernatural call and the significant community. So first, in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3 in the book of Exodus, the supernatural call. Moses was going about uh, his everyday business. He put his sandals on just like any other guy and uh, grabbed his shepherding staff and he went out to tend the flock and went about life uh, for what it was for him at this time. And as he is out and about keeping the flock of his father-in-law, he sees uh, something supernatural. Something that didn't normally pop up in the shepherding life. In verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, that is Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses says, I'm going to go check this out. I mean, that's not what your English translation says, but in verse 3, that's what he says, right? What is this burning bush that isn't being consumed? And when the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside, God called out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses responded, yes. And in verse 5, he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet and place, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said to Moses, this is God speaking, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So here in verses 1 through 6, we are confronted with a supernatural call. The design of this text is to cue you that uh, the shepherding daily life, uh, you know, Moses, uh, something supernatural, significant has happened. And uh, it cues you to that by this burning bush that isn't being consumed. And as Moses moves toward the burning bush, God calls out to him and tells him, this is holy ground, take off your sandals. It is this idea that God himself is showing up to call Moses. And uh, the burning bush and the holy ground and Moses taking off his sandals are all cues to us, transporting us into the ancient Near Eastern world that Moses is meeting with God and this is serious business. 
and God identifies himself not just in his holiness and supernaturalness, uh, you know, the burning bush and the take your sandals off, but he identifies himself by uh, the covenant promises that he has made. And so if you were here last week for Genesis 15, it is the same language uh, that is getting pulled forward, that he in verse 6, is the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This language is covenantal language. It harkens back to the promise that God had made to Abram to give him a people and a place and to be a blessing to all nations. And remember, back then, Abram was like, God, how are you going to do that? I don't even have my own kid. And God says, don't worry, Abram, I'm going to do it supernaturally. And here, fast forward, there is this connecting piece to God's covenant promises to Abram as he calls Moses. And so as we look at this, this is often how God in the Old Testament calls people. It is not normal. It's cued and designed to tell you this isn't normal. This isn't him just going through uh, the normal day-to-day life and then just kind of reading the signs, so to speak. This is God himself showing up and calling out to him. It is not normal for bushes to be on fire and yet not burn. It is not normal for gnats to just show up out of the dust. It is not normal for uh, the Nile River to be turned to blood. It is not normal for a whole collective people to be able to walk through a sea and to have it part ways to allow them to cross on dry ground. It is not normal for water to be turned to sweet wine or for people to be raised from the dead, or for peoples whose hearts and spiritual lives are dead and dormant to be made alive again. None of those things are normal. They don't just happen. They occur, and catch this, this is part of the point. They occur when God shows up to tell you what he's doing. And here he shows up to Moses to remind him of the covenant promises made to Abram and that he has heard the call of his people and that redemption, God's deliverance of his people, is about to unfold. And so we see this turn in verse 7 toward the significant community. In verse 7, we are reminded that when we struggle and when we're hurting and we call out to God that it is not lost on him, that he hears our prayers individually and collectively. The Lord said, I have surely seen, right, again, a cue to us that it wasn't missed on God. He doesn't forget his promises made to Abram. God doesn't lose track of the details of all of our lives. That's part of the benefit of being in the people of God. He surely sees. And so in verse 7, he says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. 
And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he goes on to talk about exactly where that's going to be. This, again, echoes back to Genesis 15 and the very covenant promises made to Abram, where he said, hey, the people are going to suffer for a while. That is true, but it is not the end of the story. I will come and I will deliver them. And so here, Moses is being called not just for individual spiritual growth, and his calling and the gifts that God gives him are are not merely for his individual development or so that uh, for the sake of Moses, they are part of this full redemptive story connecting back to the promises made to Abram and Isaac and Jacob. And so he says, behold, the cry of the people has come to me, and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. The language of this supernatural calling points to the significant covenant community. That Moses is being called to not just, again, his own individual development, but to the bringing out of God's people. And not just his people, but his family. There is familial language chalked through this whole text. The idea that God is identifying himself as the God of Moses' fathers. And and this goes back generations, right? There are a number of generations uh, between Abraham and Moses, but they are connected. And that God himself functions as uh, the caretaker of this community and as the caregiver of this family. And so you get these echoes back not only to Genesis 15, but this sense of familial structure. God is saying, I've heard the cries of my children, and I am now using you, Moses, calling you to deliver them out, to deliver them out collectively. Notice here that while Moses is an individual true, and uh, I, I think in terms of application, it is true that for each of us, you can't be born into the Christian faith. Um, you still have to, while you may grow up or be a part of Christianity in some way, you still have to individually repent and believe. That is part of God's calling. But that as you do that, your gifts, your spiritual growth, your spiritual vitality, all of who you are is designed to be used in part of a broader community beyond just yourself. And that's what's happening in the Exodus 3 story. God supernaturally calls Moses, but he's calling him to a task that involves the deliverance of the full people of God. Moses is called to bring all of them out, and he does it not just by himself, but he does it with the help of Aaron. He does it with the help of Miriam. He does it with the help of the elders when he confronts Pharaoh and as he tries to get the news out to the people, and God is superintending all of it. It is God who has designed his covenant community to function together with different gifts. 
And so as we think about this supernatural call and the significance of community as a church in the 21st century, going back to that opening illustration, we have to do business with our own sets of preferences, with the ways in which we know that we're different from others, with uh, what culture tells us to uh, be independent, to achieve excellence, to be the best, to maybe even put more harshly, to crush the competition, to stand above and stand out. And in the midst of all of that, when it comes to God's call on our lives, we have to wrestle through, well, what connects you and I? What connects you to the people sitting behind you and in front of you? What connects you to the people sitting beside you? You may have things in common. You may live in the same place. You may have some of the same hobbies. But for Christians, what ultimately connects us is our supernatural calling from God to repent and believe in Jesus and our union with Christ and how that adopts, brings us into a new family. That is the amazing thing of Christianity. It's it's not just a set of religious practices to clean up your own spiritual life. It is a supernatural call where the Holy Spirit works in your life to make you alive and then adopts you into God's family to continue to participate in his work. That is incredible. And part of you may be wondering, hold on, really? God is calling me in a supernatural way? Scripture's answer to that is yes. Well, how do I know? You know because that is what Jesus announces when he arrives in the Gospels and says the kingdom of God has arrived and invites all who have ears to hear and eyes to see. That is, any who turn in faith are invited in. And so for us, that means the Christian life is a life in community, which brings both challenge and blessing. Part of the challenge of being a part of a community, being even a part of a new family of faith, is that not everyone gets what they want. If you have lived with a roommate or a spouse or children, then surely you know not everyone gets what they want. It's just part of how it goes uh, when there's, uh, there's uh, lots of options, but only one choice can be made, and lots of people are weighing in. So uh, anytime you're talking about more than a few people, not everyone gets what they want. And that's true in a faith community, that God calls us together, but that that involves sacrifice, that that involves some giving of ourselves where all of our own preferences individually may not be met, but that we sacrifice that for the sake of participation in the broader community. That's part of the significance of the community of faith. And I think that there's some fairly important character formation that happens with that. Because each time you don't get your way, and kids, I think this is really important for you to hear, each time you want something really bad and then you don't get it or you have to set it aside, particularly for the sake of your family, then that teaches you something about not only how the world works, but how God works through his community and what God himself, through Jesus Christ, has modeled for us. 
And so it helps us form things like generosity and things like service. These are words that we often admire, but they don't happen in a vacuum. Generosity means giving of yourself, uh, often to others who are in need. Service means giving of your own time and energy for the sake of others. Those things come about in and a part of community. And so sacrifice and character building happens, but then there are benefits that come with that. There are ways in which a multi-ethnic, multi-generational community with people who are coming from different spots in life, when we give of ourselves to participate in the full church community, we learn and grow. Our blind spots are oftentimes revealed, ways in which we tend to not think of our culture or how we think of our culture in conversation with other cultures. It gets shaped. It grows. Of course, there are challenges to a multi-ethnic community where uh, when people's blind spots are on display inside of a community, it can be hurtful. But if, as a community, we commit to faithfully loving one another, it means that we don't just stop there, that we continue to grow up together in our faith. We extend love and care to our neighbors. We are part of something larger than just our individual selves. And what God does with that is a fewfold. When you think of the Good Neighbor program, just as an example, this incredible work uh, for this Afghan family that has just been resettled in our area, and the collective effort to help that transition process to a people coming to a new place, uh, to people being introduced to everything new— if you put all of the work that happened, led by the Mercy Ministry team, if you put all of that work on one person and said, would you do this, they would be quickly overwhelmed, I think. But part of the benefit of the significant community functioning in faith is that we get to pull together to help bless, care, and serve for others in ways that would never get accomplished individually. And that's part of the amazing witness of the church. So that in the 21st century, when much and uh, much of what we may hear or think or gets pressed in on us leans, at least in the United States, toward an individualistic view, you're showing up, you're participating in a local church community with both the sacrifice and blessing that comes with that becomes a participation not just in Mosaic Silver Spring and not just a Presbyterian church, but becomes a participation in God's fuller covenant community that transcends, that is bigger than just our time and place or just our certain uh, spot in the world. That is what Jesus accomplishes in his work. That is God's call to us that we respond in faith just as Moses did. That we faithfully participate in the calling out of others. Not calling out, sorry, maybe I should use a different phrase there. Not calling out in a bad way, but in a testifying, in a making known, in, in an encouraging to others that you can't go it alone. And it's not that the community that you're a part of is perfect. It is that it is being perfected by the work of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit 
that's the Christian hope, that God's supernatural call to us and his significant community shape us today, tomorrow, and forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you will watch over us, that you will care for us, and that as a community, we will faithfully love and care for others. God, I ask that you will help us to give of ourselves faithfully to others. And that in doing that, we won't just... uh, feel better about ourselves. We won't just think that we're working one step closer to you, but that our character will be formed to become more like you, Jesus, the one who ultimately gave of himself to deliver us in an ultimate way. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen.